Welcome to the Emotional Self-Reliance Podcast, exploring wellness tools to empower achieving your fullest potential. Your host is Sarah Price Hancock, Certified Rehabilitation Counselor with an Advanced Certificate in Psychiatric Rehabilitation and a Trained Peer Support Specialist. Sarah currently works as a Psych Rehab and Recovery Consultant, guest lecturing for universities and organizations determined to improve the quality of life by igniting hope, fostering choice and accountability, developing empowerment, creating a recovery environment, and finding meaningful purpose. So let's discuss emotional self-reliance with your host, Sarah. Hello, 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 and thank you for tuning in to the Emotional Self-Reliance Podcast. Like Rick said, I'm your host, Sarah Price Hancock. And I just wanted to give a shout out to Rick, who's over at the VR Workforce Studio podcast, and thank him very much for partnering with me and creating that intro. I'd also like to just give you an idea of what I'm doing over here. I am broadcasting to you live from my little house on the hill in Southern California, San Diego, and... I'm doing this kind of as an exploratory journey to share with you experiences that I've had and lessons that I've learned from them and wellness tools that I've discovered along this journey. And so while most of you will never experience some of the extreme experiences I've experienced, hopefully you can take some of the skills and the lessons that I've learned and somehow apply them in your life or share them with other people who might benefit from it. So I'm going to be posting new episodes every single Wednesday because lots of people refer to Wednesday as Wellness Wednesday. So we're going to be doing that as well. And I guess I have some unique qualifications in creating a podcast on emotional self-reliance. I have been told that I am very resilient. And honestly, I think that's exceptionally overstated. But I think it comes because a lot of people have not heard about my entire journey. They've kind of heard some of the surface parts or points of it. And I think resiliency can be built and can be strengthened. And it's in doing so and in learning from our life experiences that we can create this emotional self-reliance. So it's a lot of hard work. It's not something that we're just born with, I don't think. I think it's something that we grow into. And hopefully in hearing this podcast, you will find some seeds and nutrients for your own growth process. So first of all, you're probably wondering if you're not familiar with the recovery model or with recovery in terms of mental health, what in the world am I talking about wellness tools about? What does that mean? Well, wellness tools are, in clinical terms, or everyday terms, a lot of people call them coping skills or coping strategies. Basically, they're anything that you can do in order to enable yourself to feel better, feel well. And whether it's waking up at a specific time or eating well or being around people that you enjoy, there's just a variety of different wellness tools. And, and the more wellness tools we can gather in our wellness toolbox, the more able we will become 
in our ability to adapt to just a variety of different situations. So the entire concept of wellness tools was developed by a woman named Mary Ellen Copeland, who is honestly one of my heroes. And she began exploring what it was taking for her peers to learn how to live with these symptoms associated with mental illness. And she began developing what she eventually called a wellness recovery action plan. And as part of that wellness recovery action plan, or that RAP plan, she identified that we need to have wellness tools. And I personally like the concept of wellness tools because, I mean, if you think about it, I don't know a single person who wouldn't just be giddy at getting a $500 gift certificate for Home Depot where you can go and just get whatever it is you need to build or fix or create something. And in order to do so, you'll need, you know, some very specific tools of different sizes and all the fun you can have in exploring your development process or your creative process. And that's kind of like working and living with life. You you, you got to learn all the different strategies to kind of get where you want to go in life. That's why, you know, self-help books and those kinds of things are so readily accessible and, and used by everyone because everyone is trying to change something about themselves. And so... Basically, this podcast is going to share with you my experience on this growth process and how I became autonomous and developed into myself and who I wanted to become by developing my own wellness tools and eventually becoming emotionally self-reliant. So I guess part of the reason I am qualified, I mean, obviously I have the academic accolades, but I'm also qualified because I actually live with 36 years of profound memory loss. I had medical treatment called electroconvulsive therapy, which caused acute trauma to my brain and erased essentially probably 85 to 90 percent of the first 36 years of my life. And so in doing that, when you think about your own personal identity, all of your memories are wrapped up in that identity, all of the experiences that you've had. So if you obliterate those, then you're left with a person who doesn't really know who they are or how they became the way they are and doesn't have those memories that can comfort them during times of distress or trial or or loneliness. And so it's people like me who get to rediscover who they are when they're 36. And my family refers to it as living with someone from a live version of the movie Fifty First Dates. That was me. Gratefully, I've moved past that in many ways. In some ways, I'm still working on it. In lots of ways, I'm still working on it, I guess. But anyway, I guess this is what's qualifying me to help you learn about wellness tools. So just a little bit of a history of my own. I I have two younger brothers. I've got great parents. We all have our own personalities. We're all learning how to communicate better and interact with each other. And this life is a learning process, right? I began experiencing symptoms of what I now understand were anxiety When I was probably 9 or 10, I began experiencing symptoms of what I now recognize were depression-type symptoms about the age of 13 or 14, and then I started having problems with 
hypomania and insomnia, like when I was like 17 or 18. And then I had my very first psychotic break when I was 23. And it wasn't until that first psychotic break, which occurred while I was out of state at Brigham Young University, going to school, that's when I very first entered the psychiatric mental health program. Prior to that, we just didn't recognize the need for any support, or they didn't have all of the awareness campaigns then that they did now, which actually, as we go along, I'll explain that's actually kind of a good thing that I didn't have those things previously. But essentially, I began living with symptoms that psychiatry recognized as bipolar disorder with psychosis, and later they changed the diagnosis to schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type, and then later they changed that to schizoaffective bipolar type with catatonia, and I kind of went in and out of the catatonia. But basically, for 12 years, I lived with acute symptoms of psychosis, and I would hear and see things, and the voices that I heard were very menacing, they were very mean, and basically 24-7 berated me and told me how and why to kill myself. And so when I started believing it, I would recognize that gratefully, and because my family had a good history with doctors, I would just go ahead and check myself into the hospital because I no longer felt safe. And unfortunately, my doctor saw that not as being proactive in treatment or proactive in preserving my own life, but he saw that as attention-seeking, which, if I really wanted attention, I would publish a book, or I would, you know, do something positive. I wouldn't want negative attention. Anyway, go figure. So I was living with these symptoms. I was always very treatment compliant because, again, I grew up in a family with a mom who lived with her own type 1 diabetes. She was very brittle diabetic, so she was in a constant dialogue with her doctors. And I kind of grew up in this culture with this very strong respect for medicine and strong respect for doctors and understood the importance of communicating clearly what I was experiencing so that my doctors could provide the best care. And so that's what I did without reservation. Unfortunately, I did not respond well to medications. And so one medication after another medication, I gradually deteriorated from what initially was just mood symptoms into psychosis, into all sorts of really creepy, scary weirdness that were just a host of symptoms brought on because my body just could not process these medications. And so consequently, I literally cycled through, in 12 years, I cycled through 37 different combinations of medications. And those combinations included five classes of medications. Sometimes I would be on multiple medications in the same drug class. So I'd have like several antipsychotics with an antidepressant, with a mood stabilizer, with an anti-anxiety medication, and something to help me sleep. And I just cycled through these medications. Actually, in 12 years, I mean, that's 37 different combinations. So many combinations that when I, in 2009, when I went and I sat down with my psychiatrist, I was really, really messed up. I needed something to fix me. And I was at my wits end and I was there at his office again and I was coming apart and I was just, just begging him to give me anything to fix this. 
And he pulled up my chart and he started evaluating all the different medications that I'd been on. And then he got quiet and he started counting. And then he looked at me and he said, Sarah, you've been on 37 different combinations of five classes of medications over the past 12 years. There literally is not another medication out there yet that you have not been on. And they have not invented a medication combination that will help you. You are too sick. We have to wait until they invent something new. And I looked over at him and he had tears in his eyes. He knew how hard I'd been trying. He knew all the counseling appointments that I'd had. He knew that I'd been working with a case manager. He knew the abusive group home that I was currently in. He knew about all of it. And to have him tell me that they had not yet invented the medication was just heartbreaking. And I started to cry. And he looked up at me from his computer and he said, Sarah, they haven't invented it yet, but that doesn't mean they're not going to invent it. And I promise I'll be here with you until they do. And we'll figure this out. And I just, I left that appointment just completely shattered because I'd done everything I'd been counseled to do. I'd done everything I'd been told to do. I'd, I'd taken all of the medications I was told to take. And I had progressively grown worse over those 12 years to the point that I was, I was living in a group home. I had no job. I had no ability to work. I was getting shock treatments three times a week, twice a week, once a week, three times a week, three times a week, twice a week, once a week. And I was just, I had become this hollow shell of who I once was. And here he was telling me I was irreparably broken until someone else could fix me. And I couldn't wrap my brain around that. Being irreparably broken until someone, by some stroke of luck, invented some chemical compound that could magically fix me. And it was at that point that I determined I wasn't going to wait for that to happen. I had tried everything they'd given me, and I needed to figure it out on my own. Because they couldn't do it for me, obviously. Because following their advice had only gotten me more and more sick. And I had done all I could to do what I was supposed to do, and I'd gotten progressively worse. So I began exploring and I started meeting people and I started asking questions and I found an organization that taught a family to family class and I took that class and while the content of the class was interesting, what really got me about the class was that it was taught by what they were calling a person who was a peer support specialist. And it turns out that this peer support specialist was someone who had a mental health diagnosis. And in the case of my teacher, she actually lived with the same diagnosis that I did. And I remember, you know, they're reading these words verbatim, and they really didn't apply much to me in many aspects. But as I sat there watching her through this class, I realized she was working. 
She would talk about her significant other, who sometimes he would come to the class with her. They would talk about the apartment that they had. And these were all things that I'd grown to think were impossible for me to achieve. Living on my own, having a job, having someone who valued me, and I could have a relationship with, who would accept me for being me. And I began outside of the class, like after class, I just started like peppering her with questions, just rapid fire. Well, how do you do this? And how do you, you know, how do you get to work after taking your medication at night and, and waking up on time? How does that even happen? And just, you know, I just had so many questions for her and bless her heart. She answered them. And I honestly don't even remember her name or even what she looked like, but it was too close to the ECT. But I do remember that she gave me hope that this was possible and that I could do this. And so from there, I decided since the ECT wasn't working, since they hadn't found medication yet that could help me, I decided that I would keep taking the medication that I was currently on because I'd been told that medication, I needed medication to fix my brain. And if I went off medication, everything would deteriorate. And I definitely knew that I could not handle things deteriorating any worse than they already were. So I decided to continue taking the medication. And I decided that I had to find someplace safe. I had to move out of the abusive group home that I was in. I had to find someplace safe. So I began looking for someplace and, and I finally found someone who was willing to ignore the calls from my previous roommates and and just welcome me into her home. She was a nurse and she recognized that I had a real illness, that that I needed a safe environment and that she could provide that for me. And I refer to her as my angel of mercy. And my uncle and I had sat down and figured out my budget and basically with my social security check by the end of, you know, paying my my bills and my rent, essentially I'd have $23 for the rest of the month for food. And that very first day, I, I actually was moving out of the group home on the day that the nurse was supposed to come and pick me up for an ECT treatment. But my friends came and they moved all my bed and my dresser out of that room. And like, they were doing this just as the nurse was coming to get me for the ECT. And I was like, peace out, lady, because I ain't going. And the reason why I'd chosen so definitively that I could not go with her was because just the prior treatment, they had actually forced me to sign the consent papers as I was in restraints and they were starting the IV for the anesthesia. And I knew that I had to get out of there because I wanted control of my life and of my treatment. But that's the story for another day. So I chose to quit ECT and I literally had probably the worst case of learned helplessness. At the time, I didn't know what that meant, but learned helplessness is where you've tried everything you possibly can for as long as you possibly can and, and without any result. And so basically you begin to feel that whatever you do doesn't matter because it won't change anything. And so I really, after 12 years of living in this system, I really had a very 
overdeveloped sense of learned helplessness and victimization. And I was a victim of my illness. I was a victim of my symptoms. I was a victim of all of the things that were happening in my brain. And it was just not a good situation to find myself in. But um, I wanted to live a normal life. And I determined that that meant I needed to do all the best that I could to fake it until I made it. And so even though I had no skills to rely on because they had been erased by ECT, I no longer had my college experience, I no longer had my work experience to rely on, I began brainstorming with a friend. I began brainstorming with a friend, and she invited me to apply for work at an agency that um, needed it was a large tax group, and they needed a receptionist. And I can talk on the phone. So I applied, and I practiced and practiced and practiced what I was going to say in my job interview, because I had no work experience. And when they ask you questions, tell us about an experience when I really had no answers for those questions, because I had no experience to base any answers on. And I couldn't read at that time. I was reteaching myself how to read. I couldn't do math. My roommate had to teach me how to do double digit subtraction. It was just quite a learning curve. But through this, I began again talking with peer support specialists. And, and I found a book. I found a book shortly after I moved into this house with this woman, and the book was called Flourish by Martin Seligman. And this book talked about an exercise that he did with his students. Mind you, it took me so long to read just the first two chapters of this book because I'd read a line and forget where I'd just read and try to read the next line but didn't know which line I was supposed to read next. Anyway, I began reading out loud, which helped, and I... I had to circle words that I didn't know and look up so many words on every page, which was bizarre to me because prior to ECT, I actually was an honors publication editor. I worked in the honors publication lab at Brigham Young University, and I worked as a editor in the humanities department with Dr. Don Norton. And so I edited faculty papers. So this was really a new concept for me, having begun reading when I was three years old to suddenly have to look up almost, you know, every fifth word on a page to understand what I was even reading. Anyway, so I was reading this book, and it was talking about this experiment that he'd done with his students to help them break through this learned helplessness and to see if they were, if they were living according to their values. And the experiment was to write out three things that went well with an explanation as to why they went well. And that was the most critical component. You had to explain why things went well. And his challenge to his students was to do this over the entire semester. And if they did this, then they would show themselves growing in their authentic happiness. And you can even go to his website and create your own account at AuthenticHappiness.org and, and get your get your authentic happiness score out of one out of 10. And, and so I went and I got my happiness score. And, and it's he said that he, you would every person in his class jumped an average of three points on this authentic happiness scale. And I think when I took it, I got like a one or a two on the authentic happiness scale out of 10 points. 
And he's saying, even the clinically diagnosable people jump at least, you know, an average of three points on this when they're doing this exercise. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to prove this guy wrong because nothing is going to help me. My doctor's already told me I'm irreplaceably, irreparably broken. And so I'm going to just prove this guy wrong. So I sat down with my little booklet and determined that I would every day write down three things that went well with an explanation as to why they went well. And the first day was brutal. I sat there for 20 to 40 minutes staring at this blank piece of paper, trying to come up with a single thing that went well, and I honestly couldn't. I just was in such a bad state. And I got to crying so hard because nothing in my life was going well. And finally I decided, you know what, I'm just going to write down something flippant. And so I wrote down, I didn't slam my head into the wall when I got out of bed this morning. And then I realized I had to explain why I didn't slam my head in the wall because you always have to explain why something went well. And so I got to thinking about it, and I decided if I was going to be flippant with the first part of the statement, I was going to be flippant with the second part of the statement. And so my explanation was I didn't slam my head into the wall when I got up in the, out of bed this morning because I have an amazing sense of balance. And so that first day, and maybe even that first week, I did do this exercise. It took me 20 to 40 minutes a day, and almost everything I wrote was pretty flippant, but I was at least getting into the practice of, of physically writing out three things that went well with an explanation as to why they went well. And by the end of the first month, I began, it, it started not taking me that 20 to 40 minutes to write down three things that went well with an explanation of what went well or of an explanation of why it went well. But again, I had no school, no skills to rely on. And, and I did, I went and I applied to that job. And I actually was hired to work with this tax company as someone who answered phones. And I got connected with the California Department of Rehabilitation. I have a lot of deaf friends and they were teaching me about how I could maybe get retrained to you know, be able to go to work at something other than an entry-level job because I needed to be able to support myself. And I took, finally I determined that, you know, when I had originally graduated with my bachelor's, I had wanted to become a rehabilitation counselor and I'd been accepted to graduate school and I something fell apart in the program or with me and I ended up not enrolling in the program and coming back to San Diego and that's about the time that I was having all of these problems and became catatonic. And so I thought, you know, I've always enjoyed working with people who have some form of difference or disability. Um, different abilities, I guess. And so I decided that I I wanted to go and study that. And so I, when I spoke with the rehabilitation counselor, I was like, I want to do what you do. I want to help people learn accommodations so that they can circumvent these situations they're in and achieve their fullest potential. So she kind of got me on the path of 
of who I needed to talk to and what I needed to do to prove that I was really serious about this. And I took the GRE after months of studying. Mind you, I'm still circling pages in very basic books, even children's books, and looking up definitions. And so when I took the GRE test uh, several months after ECT, I actually scored in the bottom third percentile of that test, which means that 97% of the people that took the test did better on it than I did, which essentially means I probably could have done better if I would have guessed on every single answer, or even just guessed the same letter on every single answer. But gratefully, the faculty over at San Diego State University took a look at my grades before ECT and took a look at my lived experience and said, you know, I think you might have something and and we're going to invite you to be a student in our program. So I had some neuropsych testing done that demonstrated I had major deficits, but the good thing about these neuropsych testing was that they gave me some ideas of academic accommodations I could ask for. And so I took that to the disability services office and they kind of helped me level the playing field. And I just kept doing that what went well and why journal. Every single day, I just kept looking for things that went well and trying to explain why they were going well. And I did get hired at that tax company. And it was funny because I asked the the regional boss. I'd worked there for about three weeks. They liked me so much that she asked me to be her her administrative assistant. And I asked her, you know, out of all of the people that you interviewed, because they interviewed this in these huge panel interviews. And I remember sitting there in this room full of 10 people, and they were rapid fire questions at us. And I just remember sitting there stumbling for words and stumbling for answers. And when I got the call back saying that they wanted me to work for them, I was floored because I was so sure that I had botched my interview. And I asked her, you know, out of all of these people, what was it about me that made you hire me? And she said, well, Sarah, you wore the company colors. (laughs) And (laughs) you have to understand, at the time, I had two shirts and I had three church skirts because I went to church more than anything else. And that, and I had a pair of jeans. That's literally my entire wardrobe. And here she is telling me that she hired me because I wore the right colors to my job interview. And I was like, that was divine intervention. Anyway, it was exciting to work in that office because I felt needed and I felt wanted. And people were relying on me in many ways because I had taken such copious notes during training And then I'd gone home and I'd typed them up because I was so worried that I would forget. And I did forget what they'd trained me, but I printed everything out and I put it in the three ring binder and I referred to that as Sarah's brain. And I was really surprised how many coworkers came and asked to borrow Sarah's brain. Basically, I worked to figure out what I needed to do to become a rehabilitation counselor and graduate from being a receptionist into making a career move. And so as I'm going through this entire process and getting accepted to graduate school and 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 transitioning from my work uh, as a part-time receptionist into a graduate student, about eight months had passed since this conversation with my psychiatrist. And I had been going into him probably about every five or six weeks during that period of time. But I went for the next follow-up. And 
he just looked at me with wonder, and he says, Sarah, eight months ago we sat in this office, and I was telling you that they had yet to invent a medication that would help you. And yet, here you are telling me that you've applied to graduate school and been accepted, you've got a job, you've moved out of the abusive group home. He's like, what changed? What changed? Because your medications haven't, and you're on the same dose that you were eight months ago when you came in and told me they weren't working anymore. And I, I'm honestly curious, what changed? And I got to thinking about it, and I realized a couple things that changed. One was I realized I needed to take more control over my own treatment, more than just taking medications, and more than just going to counseling with a counselor that didn't understand what it was like to live with psychosis. I needed to talk to people who were experiencing what I was experiencing so that I could learn their tricks, the tricks of the trade. And meeting people who were doing it gave me hope. And previously, I did not have hope that this was possible. And the other thing that I'd done was I had done that what went well and why exercise. And as I'd done it, little by little, I'd go back and I'd see things. And I recognized that everything basically fell into three categories. Either I personally had made something go well, which was news to me because I thought I was an inept, unworthy individual that couldn't do anything. And suddenly I'm realizing that I'm an agent of change. Or someone else had made it go well, which was surprising to me because I really had arrived at the conclusion with the way so many people treated me because of my diagnosis and probably because of my behavior and all of the everything that goes around with both a diagnosis and the weird behavior. I'd felt like a leech to society and just a burden on everyone. And yet there were people who, who were seeing through that and who were helping me get things done in my life. Who, people who sometimes I didn't even know them. They were perfect strangers. So it was either myself or someone else. And the third thing was there were a lot of times I could not explain why something went well. And because of my cultural and religious up upbringing, I began to feel that maybe when I couldn't explain why things went well, maybe that was because God had made them go well. In which case, he hadn't turned his back on me, and he still thought I was worthy of his help, which honestly was news to me, because of where I'd come from in so many abusive situations through the psychiatric system. So I began to realize I was an agent of change, I wasn't a leech on society, and people weren't out to get me, and I realized that, that God wasn't plotting my demise either. And I told my doctor this, and he was just, he just looked at me with a smile on his face. And he told me basically that sky was the limit, and that I could do whatever it was that I set my mind to do. I just needed to figure out how to do it. And I think he's right. And from that point on, I determined that I would, I would figure it out. And suddenly this prognosis that my inpatient doctor had given me and given my parents of someone who would never be independent, never have their own home or their, or 
a relationship of quality or, you know, be an active family participant. All of those things he was telling my parents, prognosticating about my inabilities, really had been limiting to me. And none of them were true because I was learning how to overcome those things. So part of the reason why I had such rapid deterioration was because I'd lost faith in myself. And I'd lost faith in who I was, and perhaps I never really understood that to begin with. And I think that was part of the problem. I'd never really understood who I was or why I was here on this earth. And that became a quest to understand and a quest to take what I've experienced in my life and to polish it in hopes that in my sharing it with other people, maybe they could take something from that and and find hope in it and, and use it to improve them their circumstances and their situations. So part of it was because I'd lost myself or had yet to d- uncover or discover who I really was. And part of the reason I deteriorated so badly was because of the medications and the treatments that I was getting that just were not conducive to my health. And so I wanted to just invite you, there's, if you like books, and if you like podcasts, you're going to love audiobooks, right? So check out um, Audible. You can get a free, risk-free 30-day trial and a free book. And the book I personally would recommend because it really taught me about my own journey was the book called Anatomy of an Epidemic. And this book is written by Robert Whitaker, who's actually an investigative journalist. And he's gone through and tracked psychiatric literature and tracked news stories and tracked the culture of psychiatry and tracked the evolution process of people being on medications for long periods of time. And as I was reading this book, there were times, I mean, you got to be careful if you're going to listen to it on Audible. (laughs) You got to be careful because there were times I really wanted to just throw the book out the window. I was so torqued because he was explaining things that had happened in my life that my doctors hadn't recognized. And I was like, oh my goodness, how can this journalist identify these things that have happened in my life and he can see this as a pattern throughout history of all of these journal articles and all of these everything and why can't psychiatry see that anyway I'll put a link in my show notes so that you can look and if you're interested in joining audible for a three risk-free 30-day trial and get a free copy Uh, to listen to of the anatomy of an epidemic by Robert Whitaker. Totally recommend it. I'll give you that link in my uh, show notes. So as a closure of this podcast, episode one, I want to invite you to begin writing your own what went well and why. And every day, if you do this with me, we will daily write out, identify three things that are going well in your life and write out an explanation as to why you feel they went well. For some reason, it helps like rewire your brain to some way. It helped rewire mine. And honestly, I really thought I'd be writing this letter griping, griping, 
you know, to Dr. Seligman telling him that it didn't work. But you know what? It did. <laughs> and my life was completely transformed. Like this was the launching process for me to get back on track was to begin to identify three things that went well and physically writing out an explanation as to why they went well. So what I'd like to invite you to do is to just do this with me. And you're welcome. If you'd like to send me your three things that went well, that would be awesome. If you'd like me to share those things with our 11 listeners, I mean, all 11 of us can just get together and, and, you know, I can share one or two of your what went well and why statements. And going forward, um, if you'd like to send them to me, go ahead and send them to me through my podcast email. That way I don't get them lost in any other email. My email for the podcast is esrpodcast at hotmail.com. So that's esrpodcast at hotmail.com. Emotional self-reliance. Esrpodcast at hotmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so happy we're finally doing this. Okay, I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to working with you. I guess we're not really working. We're just kind of having this discussion. I'm sharing my experiences. And I'm really excited to be able to share them with you. I hope you have a fantastic day. Good days don't just happen. We got to make them happen. Take care. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Emotional Self-Reliance Podcast. For more information about this episode, check the show notes on www.psychrecoveryandrehab.com slash ESRpodcast. Was this episode helpful? Leave a review and share with a friend. Keep exploring wellness tools to empower achieving your fullest potential by tuning into our weekly episodes. Until then, take care.